A lot can change in three years. Heck, if the last year has taught us anything, it's that things can change quickly and they change faster than we think. Our guest for this episode is Laura Belgray. And Laura was on our podcast a little over three years ago. That was episode 15, where she talked about the kind of business that she had. And she talked about a lot of things that she wasn't even interested in doing. Now, three years later, that's all changed. She's built the business that she said she didn't want, and she loves it. So we're gonna get into the details of that change and what Laura's done with her business. But first, let me introduce my co-host for today, copywriter and launch strategist, Brittany McBean. Welcome, Brittany. Thanks, thanks for having me. I've told you that my life goal is to be Kira when I grow up, so now I'm just one step closer. Yeah, right. If Kira decides not to come back, you uh, you can just stay. Well, you're, I'm you're taking Kira. her spot. Exactly. Watch out, Kira. You've been warned, Kira. <laughs> so I'm excited to have Brittany here to share her thoughts about what we chatted with Laura today. But before we get to that interview and to the things that we want to share, uh, this is your weekly reminder that this episode of the Copywriter Club podcast is brought to you by the Copywriter Think Tank. That's our mastermind for copywriters and marketers who are doing some pretty big things in their business becoming better copywriters, creating products, uh, maybe creating things like video shows, like what Brittany has uh, on YouTube, um, podcasts, even building agencies, product companies. If you want to um, do something interesting like that in your business and become the person that high paying clients call because you're the person that they know, that's what we help copywriters do in the Think Tank. To learn more, visit copywriterthinktank.com so that we can chat about whether it's a fit for you. Okay. So let's jump into our interview with Laura Belgray and find out more about her business and what's changed. What have you been doing since we spoke to you on episode 15? Four, four and a half years ago. Four and a half years ago. Right. We just established that was 2017. And I mean, so much like my business was totally different then, which I guess we'll get into. We can get into it right now. But uh, I was, so back then we talked about copywriting for clients and that's what I was doing. And that's all that I was doing. And now I don't do that anymore. And so my business looks totally different. I have a group program called Shrimp Club and that which runs for nine months of the year. We just wrapped around three and it was amazing. And I have a couple of courses, one of which I'm launching right now. It's called Inbox Hero and one called Launch Hero. And I love selling those. And so my business is all the kind of business that I said I didn't want to have, but now I have it and I'm so happy about it. So that's that's pretty much what I've been doing. Let's talk about that because like you said, that's not what you had planned on you know, four years ago, but it is what you are today. So like why the change? Like what, what made you evolve to what you've got today? Yeah, it's funny. I was just, I was just looking at the transcript for our, our first episode and uh, episode 15. And it's, it's so funny. I see a lot of myself saying like, well, I never want to have a team. Did you say that? Um, I did. I did. I said, I don't want a team. I know everybody says that that's what it takes to get to the magical seven figure mark, which I would love to do. That's what I was saying to you then. But I just don't want a team and I don't want that kind of business. And then I hired somebody in 2018. Her name is Sandra. I don't know if you know her, but Sandra Booker, she's amazing and n not available. Um, but I, I found her through Tarzan K. 
Yeah, a lot of people like Sandra. I've heard I've heard her name passed around Mm -hmm. quite a bit. She's very popular, very popular in these rounds. And and people uh, do try to I mean, everybody tries to hire her. And I think you can for a little bit of consulting, possibly. And she has a mastermind that helps you with like your tech stack and stuff like that, Um, or that you can send your VA to. So hiring Sandra, at first, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with her. But you know what? Tarzan wrote a Facebook post about her back in, I guess it was 2018, and said the magic words. She said, since I hired Sandra, I've been making so much more money. And for me, that's always a go. That's a yes. So I was like, tell me about this, Sandra. I just jumped on the chance to hire her and uh, and did and didn't really know what we did. It took us a little while to find our group because I didn't really know what kind of work to give her. I was a little confused about it. And she took on the scheduling of my clients. And in fact, that summer, my dad died that summer. And so she was incredible. She was just um, absolutely crucial, helping me reschedule things like taking things off my plate that I did not have the wherewithal to handle. I was just like, I need to be off the grid and not dealing with client stuff. And I can't, I don't want to explain to everybody what I'm going through right now and have to deal and, and have to deal with everyone's kindnesses, um, and all of that. And she did, and she did it for me. And I think that was the first time I was like, Oh, thank God, I have an assistant. And she turned out to be way more than an assistant. And on, I, I refer to her as my manager. She's an online business manager, but she started clearing the way for me to create a lot more, to take on more, to take on projects, to actually build things, create things, um, rebrand and create mini courses and sell mini courses and set them up with links. Then all the, you know, integrations and things that I didn't like, I would have sat there researching all day and probably didn't do it because of that. And also client work got in the way. So I think most uh, copywriters go through this. They would like to scale or do take on at a certain point. They say, you know what? I want to run. I want to have something of my own to sell. I'm like, I sell for everybody else. I have uh, the skills to use words that sell and I'm doing it for everybody but me. I want to create something, but then they have so much client work that they can't get to their own work, which I'm sure is something that you can both relate to from when that was your whole world, right? So I think taking on like hiring Sandra and saying, okay, I, I can work, I can at least have some support, even if I don't want a team, um, that, changed everything that set things in motion and then a couple of i'd say like mindset shifts that i uh what what would i say um that came to me (laughs) like visions uh in that same year like 2017 when i talked to you i think i had just realized that i was tired of being referred to as so-and-so's copywriter as like people would call me Marie Forleo's copywriter. And I what that wasn't even true. I was her writing partner and helped her with some copywriting, like scripting episodes, but I wasn't her copywriter. She did her own copywriting. That made me uncomfortable. And always being called somebody's secret weapon or, oh, you write copy for so-and-so, you're the real deal. I'm like, no, I want to be defined as the real deal based on my, in my own right. I decided I wanted to be Laura Belgray. I didn't want to be anybody's anything. 
didn't want to be, you know, Laura Marie's copywriter, Laura Sunso's copywriter. I wanted to be Laura Bell Gray. And it's just, I, I wanted to be a brand and a name in my own right. And I realized that that would require certain things. Like that would require um, making more of a mark with my output, with my content. And at that time I was getting really getting into emails and it's like, I have to be, I would love to be paid just to write emails. And I realized, well, if I want to be paid to write emails, I have to sell things in my emails and I have to write my emails consistently. So I stepped that up. I started being more consistent with my emails, writing once a week to start with. And then I hired a coach, Ron, I think this was in like 2018, maybe it was 2017. Now I'm losing track of time as we do. Um, but he said, if you want to, he said, if you wave, wave a magic wand over your business, what would that look like? And at the time I had these two, I had a mini course or two on my site. And I said, if everybody who signed up, who opted in to hear from me, to get my emails, bought my mini course, that would be all the money I need. I would be rich, um, rich enough for me. And he said, well, if you want more people to buy your mini courses then, or to buy, buy anything from you, then I think you should step up your emails from once a week to three days a week. And it seemed like a lot, but he's like, I guarantee you, you triple your emails, you will at least double your sales. And he was right. I tried it for a month and he was right. And I saw my sales double, more than double in that month. And so I was like, okay, this is, this is the thing. This is the secret right here is volume, is interacting with people and creating output in volume, being prolific. So uh, I started doing that and I started becoming more visible and making a push to be more visible because I knew that's what it would take also. Like I wanted to be paid to be me. So I recognized that you don't get paid to be you if people don't know who you are. So. I started pitching to more podcasts and doubling down on those efforts and pitching to speak and um, putting and getting articles and doing guest posts for publications like Business Insider, Forbes, Money, et cetera. And that changed everything also. Okay. All right, I definitely want to talk about that in more detail, but to circle back to working with clients when... So it sounds like Sandra kind of cleared the space and started to create help create this new business. Was that when you realized I can make the pivot and I don't have to write for clients, I can start to shift or did that happen later? When did that happen? It happened a little later. I would say it took about a year. So I hired Sandra in early 2018 and then it was in late 2019 that I I think in the fall, right after I no, as I launched my new site, I rebranded my site and rebranded it in a way that made it clear I don't take clients anymore. So I think I announced it around then, launched my site uh, in, I believe it was September of 2019. And that was the official notice, like no more clients. And I archived my, um, my rates and there, you can actually find them on my work with me page, but it makes it clear these are no longer available, but for, you know, if you're There's looking- no button to click. Yeah, there is a button to click. I'm like, if you really want to see what was there, right. There's no button to click for buy now. 
Um, but there's a button to click if you want to see and, uh, you know, treat it as a tourist destination and check out my old rates like it's a museum. So, Laura, I'm curious, you know, when you made that shift, at what at what level of income had you already attained? This is a poorly phrased question, so I'm sorry, but where were you as far as the so-called automated income, the non-client income was versus your your do it for your client income? Uh, and how did that shift as you like as you made the jump? Obviously, you went from 100% at one point to 100% on the other, but what did that look like through the transition? Yeah, I think so. My client income, like up till that moment, uh, the client income was pretty much all of it. And the uh, mini courses that I was selling, which was my like my 60 minute makeovers, copywriting mini course, and uh, one or two others that in about page builder that I have on my site, I think I had them all there now. I think I, then, I think I had three of them then. Um, they were making, I think they started to make six figures, maybe not quite that they went from, they had been making like, uh, 4,000 a month and went up to around 8,000 a month. Like when, um, when my coach suggested I start upping the email frequency. Right. And so they started making at least close to six figures, if not six figures. And the rest was entirely client income. And most of that was from online entrepreneurs. I had, I had really trickled off with the TV promos that I'd been writing. So I used to have regular clients. It used to be a, a real blend. And by this point, it was almost entirely uh, online entrepreneurs, private clients. Um, and it was, I was making a couple of hundred thousand, I guess. I don't remember the exact number, but it wasn't, I wasn't making nearly as much as I wanted to. Uh, I wanted to, I think I told Ron when he asked like wave a magic wand, what do you want in your business? Um, I said, I would also like to replace my income at some point um, and make even more. And I think my goal was to make uh, 500,000. Like that was my a kind of a pie in the sky stretch goal. I was like, I, I don't know where that money could come from, um, but that's what I would like. And so we started shifting things and he's, okay, so here's another thing that I said to him. I said, um, in the copy cure, like we had launched the copy cure in a real way, like taking it from evergreen to a real launch and beefed up the course made it way bigger and included this live component, which are uh, so two different things. One is um, live website and copy makeovers that I would do, not live, but I would record them on screen, do them in real time. And then the other was called Live with Laura and still is, so I still do these things uh, every time we launch. And, um, and that's where I just answer questions on the spot and that is live. And so I told Ron, I said, I love this part of the copy cure where I am doing stuff live on the spot, like answering uh, group questions, like answering people's questions in a group format. He's like, well, then that means you should have a group program. What, why wouldn't you do that? I was like, oh, is that what you do in a group program? He's like, yeah. Um, Cause I'd always resisted the idea. I felt like everyone who had group programs or group coaching programs talked about holding space. I didn't understand what that meant. I hated the term. 
And I was like, I don't know if I can do that. And I also just, I don't know, I didn't picture myself doing it. And I didn't think of myself as that kind of like leader. Um, I never thought of myself as a leader. And so that was a whole other thing. But so he said, I think you should create a group program. And so I created Shrimp Club. And he told me what I should, suggested what I should charge for it. I did not think I would be able to get anybody on board at that price. And he was like, trust me. He just had a knack for knowing that the right number to ask people. And it worked and it filled. And I loved it so much that I kept doing it. And that make, I mean, that makes up a significant portion of my income now. Shrimp Club does. So um, to go back again to kind of this, the transition, because we talked to so many copywriters who do realize along the way, I don't want to write for clients anymore. And sometimes it's like they've been doing it for two years. Sometimes it's, it's more than that. But um, that's hard for them to grasp. And they usually don't feel okay with even saying that out loud. Was it hard for you once you realized that and rebranded? Or was it easy at that point because you planned it out and you did it over time and it was just a little bit easier to make that transition? It was a challenging leap of faith uh, because I just didn't know. I had, I feel like I had enough of a cushion because I had the copy cure um, that I knew we would launch and I knew, like, I knew I would be okay if nobody showed up to the party, but it was still, I still made me nervous. I'm like, people know me for this. They want me for this. This is really easy money in a way, except it wasn't easy money. Um, it was easy money in that I had my services up. Um, people knew me. They came to the page. I didn't have to do that much heavy list lifting to get clients, they were now coming to me. And also I had done these articles that um, sent people my way and established credibility and authority and made them want to book me at my rate. And I kept raising my rates. And I finally raised my rate to a number where I thought, okay, maybe this will stop people from booking me, which is so, I know sounds so obnoxious um, and is like goals, but I, it was, re it was really, I, I was like, if they do book me, I had to think of a number where I, they probably wouldn't. And if they did book me, it would feel worth my while because I started just dreading appointments on my calendar. And that's really what it came down to. I loved the client work when I was doing it, like when I was talking to somebody and working on their copy and it was going well, I really enjoyed that but I hated seeing their names on my calendar. It's like, oh God, I have a client meeting today. Get off my calendar. And I wanted just blank space on my calendar. And I wanted to run my day in a way more. I didn't want to see like, oh gosh, I've got to get home by 2 p.m. Um, and make sure I'm in front of the computer in time for this call. call. So I eliminated, that's, that's the big reason I had to do it. And take that leap of faith and it paid off. So you, you kind of mentioned this, you know, as you're talking about this shift in your business, the, the mindset changes that you went through and what you believed about your business before and where it is today. Will you talk just a little bit more about that? Because I think maybe more than copy skills or marketing skills or anything else, it's mindset that keeps us from making these changes. Uh, you know, how was it that you were able to, to make the, the leap? I mean, it was, it was pretty gradual, but I did recognize these three things. Well, I'll, let me take you back to 
this is going to sound silly, but there was a productivity workshop that I attended in the beginning of 2017. It was in January during that time when you're like, okay, I need a fresh start. I need to be a different person. And a productivity workshop really appealed to me. I was like, this better work um, and make me a, <laughs> make me a productive human. And the main exercise that we did in it, um, we were all sitting on the floor on those like kind of yoga, self-supporting back yoga chairs. Um, and we had those composition notebooks in front of us in different colors. Mine was purple. And we, the person running it, Chris Winfield, um, who was doing these things at the time and now does publicity, he gave us a series of questions. And I've learned that everybody does this exercise. Everyone has done it a million times. I guess it's called the painted picture, but it was a future pacing exercise where we had to write that picture ourselves in our ideal life in five years. And write down, it's a series of questions about five years from now, like what do you see yourself doing for work? What does a day look like for you? Where are you living? Um, what does your home look like? What does your, what are you doing for fun? What is your mindset like? And of course I was like, oh God, I thought I was gonna learn to be productive, but going through these questions and actually writing down the answers, like, fine, what am I going to do? Sit here and just stare at the notebook while everyone writes. Um, actually writing down the answers that I saw in my mind forced me to, I think, reckon with what I really wanted and get specific about it. And admitting those things to myself, like seeing myself on stage telling stories from my life um, and what else did I want? I guess I pictured a life or a career that was kind of like Liz Gilbert's and who wrote Eat, Pray, Love, like she and many other things. Like she goes on stage and she tells stories about her life and she also kind of coaches people and helps them through stuff. But it's mostly that. And she's, she doesn't have to do anything instructional and she doesn't have to take clients. So I pictured a career kind of like that and nothing I wrote down included meet with clients at two p from 2 to 3 p.m. Nothing, nowhere on my, in my ideal world were their clients. And I understood, I was like, in order to get this picture that I want, there are certain things that I have to do. And one of them was writing more emails because it did involve writing an email. I love writing emails. So writing an email to my list and then somehow the money comes out. That was, that was the magic that I saw somehow. And so I knew that I knew what I had to do with that. I understood the steps that I had to take. And I think that was the real shift right there was admitting to myself what I wanted and admitting what it was going to take to have that. And also seeing that it was possible, even though I didn't know all, I didn't know all the steps. I didn't know how to get all the way from here to there, but I saw some of the things that I had to start doing and I started doing them, which was very unlike me because I was very much a kind of like tomorrow, tomorrow person or next year, or I can't think of anything to say, or I don't know, I don't know what people want from me. This really started with writing the emails and coming up with a talk or two to pitch to stages and, and started starting to write guest posts for big um, publications. Cause I knew that was one way to accelerate everything. Well, maybe we can dig deeper into that because you mentioned earlier 
you wanted to be paid, you know, I want to be paid to be me. And that, that comes up a lot. I mean, that sounds great. And so if we want to be paid just to be ourselves, what are some of those steps as far as visibility that we can take? Because also when I look back at you from outside perspective over the last five years, it feels like you were already doing those things and so visible before 2017. So maybe there were steps that we just didn't see or you just upped it. But what is, I guess the question in the end is just, what can we do as copywriters to be more visible so that we can move into that space where we're paid to be ourselves? That's funny that you saw me that way. I, I felt like I felt like I was hiding a little bit. And I did, I knew that I had a name. I knew I had made a name as a copywriter for other people, but I didn't feel like, I didn't feel like I was really known in any capacity um, or for my own writing. So I would say that the steps for me would be to start pitching to publications, start looking at what kind of publications publish the sort of article you would want to write. And it doesn't have to be big publications. Also, it could be um, blog posts, I mean, not blog posts, blogs, like maybe, I don't know, if, do you guys have a, a blog where you publish people? We do. Yeah. do you, you do? Okay. So um, I'm probably getting you into hot water now, but pitch to Rob and Kira. <laughs> um, you might That's have great. We're, we're always yeah. looking for good content. Yeah. There's, there's yeah. even a page on our site that tells people the kind of content that we will publish. So oh, that's yeah, that's perfect. That's, that's good. That's perfect. I have to look into that um, because I think that's like you guys are a great first step. Anyone listening to this, they understand the kind of thing, the kind of topics that you talk about and what you might be looking for. And they can look there and you make it so easy and clear. Um, I think that, yeah, pitching to, to publications and and sites like that, any place that's looking for content and everyone's looking for content. I'm not. People pitch to me sometimes like, hey, can I write a blog post for your site? I'm like, no, that's not that's not what this is. But for most big um, for most big sites that trade in content that are like magazines, they are desperate for content. So it people love like when you when you write something for a known publication one that your friends like and read, they're really impressed. So if you share something like, oh, yeah, I'm so excited. This is up. It's live. And it's on this site that I've always wanted to write for. I love these people. Um, I love Rob and Kira. And I'm so excited that they published my piece. And, you know, will you share it? You get you share it and you get people to share it. And you it brings you this halo of authority and credibility. Um, you develop so much authority from putting your content out there, from writing with authority. So I think that is a great place to start building that, building that visibility and flog it. Like you have a piece that comes out, put it everywhere, share it everywhere that you possibly can and get everyone to share it and let them know how exciting it is for you and tell them why you want them to share it and give them swipe copy to share it. Make it easy for them because you know when somebody uh, shares something from their friend, like a post, and they do it wordlessly, they just slap it up there and press post. Nobody likes it. Nobody shares it. Nobody looks at it. You've got to give a reason why you like it and uh, what it means, or maybe you pull out something that you love about it in the in the caption or in the comment. 
um, in the post itself. And so if you give people swipe copy for that, they will use it. It makes it really easy for them to share your stuff and post. And then everybody, people see you everywhere and they say, oh my gosh, you're killing it. And then that becomes self-fulfilling prophecy because they see you as killing it and then they want to work with you and buy from you and then you are killing it. So that's, that's my advice. I think if you want to build a reputation, build a name for yourself and a brand, which is necessary if you want to shift out of being a serve, just solely a service entrepreneur, um, if you need to build a brand and a name for yourself, you want to do that, start there. So Laura, you have published content in some pretty big websites, uh, not just recently, but I think over the last you know, three or four years, Business Insider, Fast Company, I've seen your stuff there. Was there um, one of those that sort of was the big step forward? You know, the first, the first article that just suddenly now you got all the attention or now that you started making more money or, or more notoriety and what was it? How did you get it? It was that first one that I did. It was for business insider and the title was, I make $950 an hour writing from my couch. Here's my best advice. If you want to work from home. I remember that. And we'll link to it in the show notes. So I remember that article. It was great. And thank you. It was a, that was a milestone for me. And I had help with uh, from Selena Sue. She, she and I are friends, and I did some work for her, and she helped me get into Business Insider. Um, we just brainstormed a couple of topics, and I didn't know what they would want. I still have trouble coming up with things that they would want to hear from me, um, and she's genius at it. So she helped me come up with that, and uh, we pitched it, and they wanted it pretty much just as is like gave them the bullet points and everything. And uh, I've learned everything about pitching from her pretty much. And my friend, Susie Moore, who's also an expert at this and great. So um, we, yeah, we submitted it, they published it. And I had no idea what kind of effect it would have. It was exciting. I knew it would be exciting to have my name in a publication and my article, but I had no idea how much People would talk about it and be excited about it and share it. Um, past, that one just had all the magic ingredients, a big number, and something about the format of the title just made people click on it and forward it to like their niece who is just out of college. So, uh, so I got like over a thousand opt-ins on that first day. That doesn't usually happen. It was pretty amazing. And that really that really helped build my list, obviously. That's a big number of opt-ins to get in a day. And uh, yeah, it, it got me hooked on doing more. You mentioned leadership and that you didn't see yourself as a leader as prior to creating um, your own group program. So what helped you work through that, especially again, for all of us who might not see ourselves that way. And, and we think we can't do that new thing because we're not quite holding space for others the way that everyone else seems to. Yeah. Um, I really did not like, there's so much talk about leadership and stepping into that leadership role that you're meant to have being the leader you're meant to be. That never rang true for me or appealed to me really because I don't even like if I have a dinner party I don't even like telling people when or where to sit 
Um, I, I've had a friend come up to me, like my rehearsal dinner for my wedding. My friend came up to me. She's like, do you want people to sit down? And where would you like them to sit? And I'm like, I just don't like that role. I don't like, I never wanted to be a counselor. I just, so I didn't think of myself in that way. And I think, well, for one thing, having my uh, Italy retreat, which you guys and I have talked about before, and I started doing in 2016, um, doing that showed me people actually will sit there and listen to me and look to me for leadership. And so that was kind of a, okay, just then do responding to that need. Um, okay, I'll be a leader. You want me to be a leader, I will lead you. And then when I recognized um, with my coach Ron's help that I really loved doing que like question Q and A's and helping people live. Uh, I think it just knowing that that's what a group program was and that's really what leading was um, helped me become a leader like and creating shrimp club. I, I learned by doing so creating shrimp club. I wasn't like, okay, I'm now I'm going to lead just like, let's see who signs up for this. And then understanding that they saw me that way. Like they reflected it back to me. Like you are a leader. Thank you for being a mentor. And I was like, okay, I guess I'm actually good at that. And it is something that I can do. And I liked it. So it seems like one of the places where you, you know, own your leadership or step into that role or, you know, for lack of a better word is in your emails. Um, and in your emails, I think stand out, you know, maybe there are a few people who do really good emails. You're definitely one of them, but what is it that you do when you sit down to write an email? Like, how do you get the magic from your brain into your fingers or into the keyboard so that it's, it's engaging when people open them? And it's not just something it's like, oh, uh, I can, I can click through this one because I know Laura's going to mention shrimp club, or I know she's going to mention this, the thing that she's always selling to me, like your emails never come across like that. So tell us about your email writing process. Thank you. I, so sometimes the magic doesn't come right away. It doesn't like flow through my fingertips. I I've always loved that idea of like channeling the muse that it comes through your head and then works its way through your fingertips and onto the keyboard. And that sometimes actually does happen when I know what I'm going to write about, or I know the story I want to write. And then sometimes I'll sit there for like an hour starting the email over and over wondering what I want to talk about that day. And that doesn't usually happen when I know the call to action. Like when I know I'm okay, I have to promote inbox hero today. Uh, I got to write another email for it. I will probably try to make that as short as possible and just give it a little twist. And then it usually turns into something longer just on its own because I, the one thing that I'll mention, like just back from, getting my nails done. If I say something like that's rare, but just back from getting my nails done, and then I'll end up having something to say about getting my nails done. And it turns into a whole story. Sometimes I'll sit down and have a story to tell. And that's usually where the magic really happens. Like I really have to write about the argument that I had last night with my husband about dinner, um, about like which kind of pasta we were having and him arguing for the short curly ones, which I hate when I want long and windy. 
And just, <laughs> I with think your people, husband, I'm with your husband. I'm with you, Laura. Long and windy beats, no. macaroni uh, type stuff every day. Yeah. I know who my friend is here. Yeah, Sorry, Kara. Right. I, we can, <laughs> we're not going to, we're not going to talk pasta. We can talk politics, but not pasta. Um, so just those mundane little moments in life that I find, I find so many of them noteworthy and worth putting down into an email. I think that's where the magic happens. And one benefit of of writing so frequently is that I can go deep on the small things. So I don't have what I would call writer's blob. Rather than writer's block, I think it's more writer's blob when you have too many things to say and you don't know where to start and you don't know which one and you think it has to be epic. And um, you don't have that as much when you're writing every other day, like three days a week, because you've... Uh, you've already covered everything and now you're looking for little things where you can go deep and not make it too, too long also. And then connecting that to some sort of a lesson arcing to meaning in some way. I used to write emails and blog posts that were just a story with no real point. It was just kind of be like, so it was really funny. And that, yeah, or so that happened. Uh, write back and tell me if it's ever happened to you, which is okay sometimes. But I realize people respond more when there is some sort of, when you give them some sort of meaning, when you arc it, arc it to meaning um, or some kind of point takeaway or call to action if you have one handy that day. Sometimes we don't have a real call to action. Although now it looks like because of this new Apple privacy thing, um, changing how we, like we're, we're not going to be able to track our open rates as well. I think the new thing is going to be getting people to click on something in every email so that you can at least measure your click throughs. So I think that's going to be something that we're all finding ways to do. It's like we've a story together with some kind of click, something that they want to click on. Um, that's that's going to be the new the new trick and challenge of writing emails. But that's really, that's where the magic comes from, I think, is writing in volume, being prolific, um, the the frequency and the ability to go deep on something really small, like mundane little quotidian moments. So should Rob and I start writing three emails a week? Is that, I mean, is that kind of like... <laughs> nope. Nobody's and more mundane I... than me, Kara. So let's break in here and talk a little bit about some of the things that Laura has been talking about uh, in the interview. First of all, I'm going to ask you, Brittany, what stood out to you? What, you know, what just rings interesting or true as you hear Laura talking about her business? Oh man, so much. You know, I, I think I first heard the word copywriting as an actual job and started to understand the industry around 2019 and, and Laura's name, of course, like floated to the top because she's a name that you hear when you start looking at the copywriting industry. And she was just this like mega figure, right? Like I just, I loved her. I, and so what surprised me is, you know, I was brand new and I was like, oh, here's this expert I just sort of learned from. And I'm listening to this podcast and she, she's, has been an expert writer for a long time. She's had a career in writing but all of the things that I was so intrigued that she was doing, she was starting around that time. And like you said in the intro, it just shocks me how 
quickly things can change in this online industry and how exciting that is. Yeah, she went from no team to deciding like, I don't want a team. I don't want any of that. And I totally relate to that. I, I mean, you know, in my in my life before I came back to copywriting, you know, I was in charge of a division at Hewlett Packard and ended up having to lay people off. And like, I've got that always going on in the back of my head where it's like, I don't want ever anybody to be reliant on me. And so I like have this this total, you know, hesitancy to to have a team. And I, so I get that I don't want a team, but then sometimes to grow, to do the things that we want to do in our business, it requires a team. And so I love that she was, you know, as she made that shift, but the thing that, that stood out to me, she's talking about, um, Sandra and, you know, this team that she's building is that she's not just bringing on employees or contractors. She's really bringing in somebody who's acting like a partner, somebody who's solving problems in her business. And that's the kind of team that I think really can help you grow and to make a difference. So there's one thing to bring in a VA. And, and of course, we should, you know, if our businesses are right for that, we should definitely do that. But finding somebody who treats your business like it's their business is, I think, a massive win. Yeah. And, you know, it's so interesting because I found the same as I've grown my team. And I remember saying to you guys, you know, a year or so ago, like, I don't want a team. I don't want to be a manager. I mean, I have said that so many times. Like, I don't want to hire a team. I don't want to manage people. It's not something I'm skilled at. It's not something I'm good at. And now I have a team of one full-time employee, so myself and another person are in payroll, and then three other contractors. And I don't manage a single person. And it's wonderful. And I have heard so many copywriters, you know, express this like, I don't want to grow. I don't want to hire a team. I'm not ready to hire a team. And it may not be right for some people, but I do wonder if there's this misunderstanding around like what it means. And for me, especially my three, they're not my three contractors, the three contractors who work inside of the business, like each one of those women own their own business and they are CEOs of their own business. And they tell me what days they have off. They, you know what I mean? Like they have these boundaries around their business. And I actually love that because they are like the boss in their specialty and in their field and they get to bring that expertise to my business and I don't have to manage them. It's really, yeah, it's, it's quite lovely. And it's not what I expected when I started growing my team. I think, yeah. I, I, and I love what you've done in your business and you've got people who, you know, take on that partnership role. You know, they, they want to help you grow because they can grow and it helps you free up time for your own projects. Just what Laura's talking about, you know, like having Sandra take on all of this other stuff that's going on in her business means that now if she wants to, she can, she can sit down and write a book this week, you know, work on her book or, or do whatever. And that's so important, not, not just for growing a business, but for like enjoying the thing that we do long-term. Yeah. One of my students inside my program asked me, cause I just started teaching a course this year for the first time. And and they're like, I really want to do, you know, a copywriting business and have products. Like, do you need a team to do that? And I said, I did. Like, there maybe there are other people who don't. I could not start creating education until the copywriter, the copywriting, like, client side of my business was a well-oiled machine. And those clients were being served at maximum, you know, like, at, at a high quality. And I needed a team to free up my time to do that. Not everybody does. I sure did. 
Yeah, I, teams, I've, I've also changed my approach to it. You know, like I said, I've been hesitant. We have a team that is awesome. The things that they enable us to do in our business, the things that they take on mean that Kira and I can do different things. In fact, I doubt Kira would be able to take a maternity leave if we didn't have this team in place. There's no way I could do everything that we do together without, without them to help out. Yeah, yeah, because you're building something bigger than you. And when it's bigger than you, then you can step out of it. Like I'm, I'm doing this podcast on vacation. I am in Folly Beach, Charleston in South Carolina, and I have not worked all week. And my clients are still being served. My students are still being served and because the business is bigger than me. And that's actually less stressful than I thought it would be. <laughs> Nice. Okay. So let's talk about some other things. Uh, you know, one, I, I don't know that there's a lot to discuss here, but one of the things that jumped out at me that when Laura was talking about how she increased the frequency of her emails is that the advice she got three times your emails, you're going to double your sales. And, you know, this, I, I saw a question about this just a few weeks ago in the Copywriter Club Facebook group. You know, people are like, how often should I mail my list? And, you know, I don't know that there's a right number or a wrong number. Some people mail every day. Some people mail once a week. But the idea that if you depend on your list for money, for selling the thing that you do, mailing more is the way that you increase the money that's coming in. And I, I just think that's it's worth repeating. Uh, and I know Kira, Kira committed us to writing to our list three times a week, uh, you know, as we were talking, <laughs> we'll, we'll see if that actually happens or not. But, um, you know, it's, it's something that maybe we should be doing just a little bit more often, not just in our business, but a lot of copywriters should be talking to their lists more often. Yeah. And, you know, she even said like, Hey, when you email your list more frequently, expect your open rate to go down and your unsubscribe rate to go up and your revenue to go up. And like, who the heck cares about your unsubscribe rate if there are more zeros in your bank account, you know? And so far or so often we're stressing like, what's my open rate? Did it go down? What What's Apple doing? And there's these changes and oh, so many people unsubscribed. And like, if that's affecting your revenue, then it's worth troubleshooting. But if it's not, then keep doing what you're doing. Who cares about those numbers? Exactly. And if you're doing it for your clients, you know, if you're, if you're helping your clients email their list, you know, I, I'm, I, lots of times we hear people who are in the middle of a launch is like, I've mailed my list five times this week. Like I can't do it again. And I guess the question is why not, you know, if they're on their list, because they want to hear from you, as long as you're sharing something that's valuable, if you're, if you're promoting a product that they need, we should be doing it. Uh, until at least until the sales go away, you know, until the reason that we're communicating uh, is done. And one thing Laura does so well, I remember when I first joined her email list in her welcome sequence, I don't remember which email it was. And I sound like a total stalker right now, but I remember in one of the first few, and it was clearly automated because it came, you know, in rapid succession, but it said like, Hey, just to let you know, I sell things on my email list. Like if you are on my email list, you're going to get sales emails. And if you don't want them, you can hop off now. And if you don't want them, you know, later, you can hit an opt out just for that promotion. And she's so good at that of like giving people that opt out. And every time she's about to do a promotion, it's, you know, if you don't want to hear about B school, click this great, we won't talk to you about it or whatever. And I think that she just gets that consent and always gives people a quick way out and never pretends like she's not doing anything but selling on her email. And I think that that's really great when it's all on the table, then everybody knows what they're signing up for. Yeah. Her emails are great. I, you know, from, from 
well, every once in a while, you know, I'll go through my inbox and it's like I uns mass unsubscribe, you know, from 20 or 30 lists that I'm on. And, you know, you, you recollect, I think Laura's might be the only list that I've never unsubscribed from. I just, her stories are so good. And maybe it's because, you know, I was a, a kid of the eighties and I remember, you know, some of the stuff that she's talking about, you know, in the clubs in New York, those kinds of things, like those stories all resonate with me. So uh, maybe that's the reason, but she's such a good writer, such a good storyteller. Yeah. It's, it's an approach that's worth emulating for the way that we all talk to our lists. For sure. And email launches are where it's at. Like when was the last time you saw Lara Belgrade do a webinar, you know, and that's webinars are fine if, if you enjoy them. But like I had a mini course sitting in my Kajabi account that I'd never even talked about once in my entire life that I sent out one email and one PS to my email two weeks ago and made $5,000. Like, like, Email is where it's at. You know what I mean? Like why, if you love doing webinars, if you love big launches, cool, do it. You like all the tech and you have all the support or you could just email your list weekly with just fun anecdotal things until you have something to sell them, then sell them that thing and make money. I have clients who have made $60,000 on one email with no webinar, like emailed to sales page done just because we wrote one email to a warm audience. Like why not? I love it. Yeah. Okay. We're doing more of that. We're, we're going to do a lot more of that. So one, uh, a couple other things, you know, Laura talked a lot about building authority, the things that she did as she started publishing, you know, with some of the big sites, Business Insider was, you know, her real uh, breakthrough. Um, I think it's really interesting. I'm not sure that it's replicable for everybody, but it's definitely something that more of us should be doing, sharing the things that we're doing in our business and growing our authority. And I know you've done a lot to grow your authority in the last year, Britt. Like, talk to us a little bit about what, maybe what, what you've done and how it compares to what Laura's, Laura's doing in her business. Yeah. You know, Laura had such a, um, a really beautiful like setup in the sense that she did have this name that held some weight in the industry and she did have all of this experience as a writer. So that when she pitched, was it business insider? I think like when she pitched them, it was, she had this incredibly sexy article ready to go. And that is definitely something to aspire to. I definitely think, you know, like printed publications or at least online, you know, is, um, kind of next level, especially when that, that name is, is something that a lot of people know, but there are so many visibility platforms that are at the same level of you in your business. I don't think that that sentence was English, but I think, you know what I mean? Like, like, so for me, I, I mean, and I can draw a direct line between podcasts I have been on to clients I have booked, you know, like that is a direct line to revenue. And and I started pitching podcasts really early and I started pitching more entry-level podcasts and having conversations with people who maybe didn't have these, you know, household names and multi six or seven figure businesses, but we were in similar places in our business and could have similar conversations. And I always say it's almost like that game and I can never remember the name of it, but we're like, you start with a paper clip and then you try to trade that up to a pencil and then trade that up to a pen. And then by the end of the day, you've got a car. It's, it's not that people are stepping stones, but that each of these visibility opportunities become an opportunity to leverage for the next one. And even on our businesses um, podcast to pitch list, we have an entire list. It's like pitch these people after you've been on this podcast, right? Like you're just leveraging. And I think that 
we always feel like in order to build authority, we have to have decades of expertise. And really it's like, go to the people who have the same expertise as you and build authority, build expertise, build experience with these opportunities. And the more people hear your name, the more, the more weight your name holds. So just get your name out there. Yeah. And the same approach, I mean, Laura didn't talk about this, but that same approach applies to clients. We, you know, we leverage, oh, yeah. you know, one not as good client to get the slightly better client. Uh, and when I say not as good, that's not a moral judgment, right? It's we're, right. we're talking like money or, or somebody that you want to work with, that kind of thing. But, but yeah, leveraging, you know, one to get to the next level, it's a, it's a ladder, it's a pyramid and you just need to walk up steps. And sometimes you can take two or three steps at a time. Like there are jumps that you make, but yeah, it's applying that same principle to uh, clients could be, you know, a way to, to get better clients. And I think, you know, one of the things she even mentioned was that she had help picking up the topic to pitch because she didn't really know what to talk about. And I think that's a hang up for a lot of people is what do people want to hear from me? Everyone's different, but like I'm a verbal processor. And so I just start talking and from talking, I learn what I believe. I learn what I think I learn, you know, like what is interesting. And so start having these lower state conversations and let the learning come from doing and then when something becomes really interesting and people keep asking the same question about one thing, or you find other people, you know, hitting you up in the DM saying, oh, it was so fascinating when you said this. Well, maybe, maybe that's your topic to go pitch to, to Forbes or to the next podcast or, you know, like just start talking and see what happens. Now I'm saying that as an extrovert, the introverts are probably like, no, thanks. I'm good. But I think it's okay to just start and see what happens. Let the confidence come from doing. I think I'll speak for the introverts. I think that works for us too. We <laughs> okay, might just have good. to talk to smaller groups, you know, or one-on-one as we, as we work some of that stuff out. Yeah. Or just to yourself, you know, just to you know, mumble to yourself, <laughs> see what happens. There you go. Okay. So any, what else stood out to you, Brittany? You listened. Oh man, just, just so much. I just really love her perspective. Um, one of the things that, that I thought was so interesting was when she said that she was like, raising her prices or or doing things in her business to prevent someone from booking her. And I just thought, and I don't think I would have this insight if I was in that situation, but maybe, you know, listeners can can learn and hindsight can be 2020. But if we're doing things in our business to actively prevent something from happening, like prevent us from getting work or getting business, then that might be a good sign that it's time to do something different. Like, I think it's okay to burn out. I think it's okay to move on to the next thing. I think it's okay to say I've gained enough experience or skill and time in this to now do something else better or different. And I just, I don't know. I kind of love that. She was like, I was raising my prices so much that I was hoping people wouldn't book me. And I was like, oh, that, that would be a good litmus test for whether you're doing something you should be doing or not, you know? Yeah, I, I love that idea. And to take it even a step farther, one thing that I've realized is I've, you know, as we've coached other copywriters and even in my own business is that um, procrastination is often avoidance of something that I don't enjoy doing. And so, I, you know, if I've taken on a client and it's not a great fit, you know, maybe I took it for the money or maybe, you know, there's some other thing going on and I find myself avoiding the work. If I'm honest with myself, it's because I don't want to do the work and not because I'm you know, terrible at getting started. And so that same principle, I think, maybe is an indicator that, you know, if, if we're procrastinating because that we're avoiding the work because something else is going on, then maybe we're doing the wrong work or we're working with the wrong clients or we're not charging enough to justify our time or there's something going on there that's causing us to procrastinate. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of like 
shoulding in in entrepreneurs' brains, especially copywriters, is like what we should be doing, the kind of business we should have. And I love that Laura, you know, kind of gave herself the time to say, what do I actually want to be doing in the business? And then what could that look like in a way that I can do it so uniquely? And I think that that's something you and Kira do so well inside of Think Tank. Like that was something, that was a conversation I had with my husband after our very first meeting was like, Rob and Kira don't have a mold that they want me to fit into. They're genuinely curious about who I am, what I want out of my business, what I'm good at. And they want to help me figure out whatever that unique business model looks like. There is no mold or even three molds. Do you have A, B, and C? And I think that you guys do that so well, you know, like what Laura's coach did for her of just helping people figure out what kind of business they are so uniquely suited to succeed in and, and actually enjoy doing. Yeah. I I'm glad that you, I mean, I, I'm not sure that I've really thought about our approach, but there is no right answer. You know, in fact, you know, a lot of the questions, you know, when, even when we sit down and coach people, um, you know, people are saying, what should I do? And oftentimes I have to talk through the options because there really isn't always a right answer. Oftentimes it's a choice between, you know, good and better, uh, you know, or, you know, how do you want to spend your time and, and what does this provide for in the future? Like, what does this lead you to if you choose this route instead of this route? That kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And you all are great at seeing the 50 options that could all be good, right? Rather than like, it's this or this and it's, I've got nothing else. And I think having that coach or mentorship of someone who you really trust and respect and who's willing to listen and learn you is, is invaluable. Yeah, that's good. Okay, one last thought from uh, this half of the interview before we go back. Um, we we argued a little bit about what's the best pasta, Brittany. Are you a curly pasta or a straight pasta person? I really struggle with this because some because I don't eat a ton of pasta, but like if my daughter had some curly pasta in front of her, I'd probably pick at it. So I kind of want to say curly, but I also really want you to like me and I want to be your friend. And so I want to say straight so I can be on your side. You're going both ways. <laughs> yes. You're an all pasta for every occasion person. D like. all of the above. Is it a carb? Then yes. Awesome. <laughs> Let's head back into the interview. Lara um, has some really good conversations about what it looks like to change the frequency of her emails, um, how her business has grown and what she's working on next. I'm excited to hear more. I'm just thinking more about the sales and what you mentioned about doubling your income that particular month when you went from one email a week to three emails a week. And so um, do you, would you recommend that to copywriters across the board as far as like, you want to make more money? go to three days a week, or if not, you know, why not five days a week or seven days a week if we're, if it makes that big of a difference? Um, do you think that will work for most service providers who may not have courses yet or group programs? Is that a good move to make? I think that if you have something to sell, anything to any kind of thing to sell or want to stay top of mind um, and have something to offer, then yes, I think you should up your frequency from whatever it is to whatever is more than that and see what happens. I don't think, I think committing to every day is tough unless you do that and find that you really love doing it. I would not, if you were, if you were going to go daily, I would not suggest announcing this is now a daily newsletter. I remember I for I did an experiment once. It was I think it was back in 2014 of saying I'm going to blog every day. 
welcome to my daily blog. And I said, I'm not, I, it's not for the long haul, but I'm for as long as I possibly can. And I remember Mastin Kip, who had a site called The Daily Love at the time, wrote to me and said, Daily, you are out of your mind. <laughs> so um, that was from someone who knew. And I enjoyed it. It was a fun experiment, but I couldn't really sustain it. It was a lot, uh, especially blog posts. And then I was writing an email to go with each one of those blog posts. But I, so I'm sure try it as an experiment. Don't make a big announcement of it. See what happens when you write every day. I can tell you some things that will be discouraging and you shouldn't get discouraged by them. Um, One is that open rates will go down because people can't, you know, it's hard for people to keep up with every day. Some true fans will open your open it every day, but um, open rates will go down and unsubscribes will go up. But I think it's a worthy trade-off for sales going up. I'll take that any day. Rob, we're doing it. We're announcing it. We're doing it three days a week. <laughs> well, and I guess the, the, the nice side of the Apple changes is that we won't actually know if our open rates go down because everything is going to go down. No That's right. So. No effect on your ego. And you know what? Also, I, I read that it's um, that it's going to be like 50 percent that that affects about 50 percent of our opens that we won't, you know, we might not see or 50 percent of them are Apple users, maybe uh, iPhone users. But we'll still have a measure. We'll still have a new we'll have a new baseline. It'll be way lower. But you, I think you can still measure based on that new baseline the people who are not. At, who have not opted out um, of being tracked. So I, and if anybody who says like, oh, oh, like open rates don't matter anymore because they're not being tracked right because you can't track them right. They don't understand that the whole goal is always going to be to get people to open your email and then get them to click. You, no matter what, whether it's tracked or not, it's like thinking that um, your weight doesn't matter anymore if you stop getting on the scale. I mean, maybe it doesn't. I don't, wait, wait doesn't it? Wait, you. are you telling me that's not true? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're off the hook. Uh, someone took away your scale. You just eat a Sunday um, every five minutes because it doesn't matter anymore. Uh, so I, <laughs> I don't, I, I don't want to um, get body negative here. Yeah, no, we won't body shame, but there's definitely shame. a health issue there that uh, is probably worth thinking about, right? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. And we were thinking about whether or not you have a scale. So it's the same deal with opens, right? You still need people to get your emails open. You still need to work on those on those subject lines. It's not going to be as easy to test them. Maybe your A B maybe A B test won't work as well, but uh you still you still gotta put some thought into that, into making it intriguing and fun and gotta step back and look at it and say, would I open this? So don't think that, that that opens are going away, that that's not important anymore. So Laura, earlier you shared, you know, what your day, what you did not want your day to look like. You know, you didn't want the client time or whatever. I'm curious what the, the um, visual for the perfect day is for you or how that compares to how you spend your time today. Like, you know, when you sit down to write an email, is it a three hour ordeal? You know, are you spending time brainstorming? Like, what does that day look like for you? When... I'm not in the middle of a launch, like when I'm not um, either doing my own launch or an affiliate launch, which I do a lot of. And I, on a day when I don't have any interviews or shrimp club, shrimp club, uh, our calls are twice a month on Tuesdays. 
So say a, a different week from that, um, it's pretty open. Like I love a calendar day that has no, no appointments on it. And I will usually, I, I rarely write my emails ahead of time. Once in a while I do, and I will surprise Sandra and send her what we call the check and send. So I send myself a test of the email and then send it to her. And I just write check and send and she will check it over, look for typos, et cetera, things that maybe I didn't mean to say that way. She'll be like, is this what you meant? Um, so give it a good look over and then set it up to send. So once in a while, I'll surprise her and send it to her on a Tuesday when it's going to be sent out on a Wednesday. But usually she checks in with me at some point late morning, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Those are my usual email days. And say oh, she'll say, were you planning to send an email today? And I will say, oh, yes, thank you. I was. And then I'll usually sit down and write that email. Or maybe I'll be in the middle of writing the email. But so the day usually starts with like, with me writing in 750words.com. That's how I try to start every day, even if I have other things on my mind that I want to write and want to sit down and get to. Um, I, I try to make that the first thing that I do. I've given up on myself as far as like not checking my email first thing in the morning or not looking at Instagram, et cetera. Uh, maybe I can reset at some point because I was good about that for like a month. But uh, I do the first thing I do on my computer on my laptop will be open up 750 words and write my 750 words and it's not it has nothing to do with anything it's almost always unusable it's just brain dump journaling whatever none of it matters uh, but I get out 750 words and I feel good about myself no matter what happens the rest of the day and then on an email day I'll write an email. Um, there are usually business things to move along and respond to and and figure out and people to respond to, uh, messages in my inbox that I should probably let Sandra and her team look at instead of me, but I can't help myself. So um, like res responding to replies to my emails, I can't help myself. I love doing that. I love looking at those. And that's, I mean, that's the thrust of my day. And that if I'm if I'm working on it, some extra project or doing a launch, then I probably am putting a lot more thought into the emails and probably emailing every day that week if it's in the middle of the launch and looking in the big Google Doc of all our emails that like Sandra puts them all into a Google Doc for me so I can see them kind of in order and mess around with the order of them. So I'll spend a lot of time futzing with that. But um, so that's a normal during a normal time. Right now I'm working on a book. And so I, I'd say it's bringing all my old demons back to visit me. Um, demons being procrastination and letting something hang over my head and hang over every moment, every waking moment, like I should be working on my book. So that kind of twists the whole bit. Like usually I'll end up opening up a chapter that I'm frustrated with and, um, and playing around with that. Uh, it takes up a lot of my, if not a lot of my time, a lot of my mental bandwidth. So, so that changes things uh, in the past year. It's changed things a lot, but that's what it looks like. I want to, I want to hear more about the book for sure. But before we talk about the book, um, how, how do you approach your business growth at this point? Because you have 
these different evergreen products. You have, you know, courses, you have group programs now, a book. Um, are you kind of, as you're thinking about the future, are you thinking about where there could be holes? Or are you thinking about an extension model or the customer journey? What else they need, all your fans need after they take this course? Or uh, is it just kind of taking it day by day, you know, offer by offer? Yeah, you know, I'm a little bit torn between two different philosophies. And one of them is focus on your one thing and sell it and focus your whole year around, like you're the whole year around selling that thing. Um, like people who have one signature program and it's a big one usually and usually a launch based thing. So I'm torn between that and the idea of always creating new offers for your biggest fans, for the people who want them. And I think that the answer for me probably lies in creating more things for the people who keep buying and they're out of things to buy. Like they've bought the mini courses, they've bought Inbox Hero, they've bought Launch Hero. Now, when I launch it, they're like, can we get the bonus too um, that you're giving to other people? The answer is usually no, because they got theirs and this is for this round. So I think there's, I think there's demand for more things. I just haven't figured out what those are yet. And that's a one, that's one place where I really fall short is just acting on like, oh, let me just do it fast, slap it up there, like put something together, but just un understanding intuitively, people want this course and I could teach it. I default to, I feel like I've said everything about that, or I feel like that would overlap too much with this. Um, so I get a little perfectionist when it comes to creating new things. And I would like to, I would like to change that. Yeah, I want to know more about the book. I've seen some of the things that you've shared with your list. Um, what, one one email that was particularly memorable to me was one where you had shared this idea of writing the book with a couple of your friends, and you had, I think, one who was supportive and one who was you know very unsupportive, if I'm remembering it right. But um, I'm really curious. I, I I've kind of written a book. I'm in, you know I've got two or three ideas of other books that are sort of in process. What, you know, Rob, you've written a book. What do you mean uh, kind of written a it's, book? It's not really, it's, I don't, I don't count that. Okay. We don't count that. So oh God, but, you're sounding like me right now. <laughs> I, think, I think the, the process of writing a book is just really interesting and, and you know, like how others impact that process. We just, we just talk a little bit about you know, why you decided to write a book, what you're doing to move the process along ever so slowly or sometimes quickly and, and <laughs> what the plan for that is. Yeah. So I'm writing a different book than you would expect me to write. I think most people in our world would expect that I'm going to write a book on copywriting or on marketing or something on mindset, something instructional. And rather than do that, and which would probably be make life way easier for me, it would give me a clear path. Like, here's what this book is. Everybody on my list will want it, blah, blah, blah. Um, instead of going that route, I'm going the, I'm making life difficult for myself and writing a book of essays. It's memoir, uh, like narrative nonfiction. And it, what it's about, the theme of it keeps changing. And my editor who acquired the book um, for Hachette, she is unsatisfied so far with the theme. She's like, we need a clearer theme here. What is this about? Why is this essay in here? What is this? This one's not even an essay. It's just a story that sort of goes nowhere. I mean, she's she's being tough on it, and I know she needs to be, but it's also dispiriting because my ego is fragile, and um, 
it requires a lot of, oh my God, you're such an amazing writer. And like, oh, I would read this all day. And now she's looking at it through the critical eyes of somebody who doesn't know me and isn't going to read the book just because they love me and want to hear my stories about my life. So, so it's tough. The, the process is tough. Um, it was easy in a way when I was just writing down whatever I wanted to write. So for a couple of years, I'm like, okay, I don't know what this is yet, but that will come, that will come out of it. And I'm just going to write all the stories that I ever tell, all the stories that my friends remember that they're like, tell that story or uh, that I think people need to know about me or just things that I find that are memorable. Like everything in my memory basically went into this book. So I have like, I've got, I don't know, a hundred something, maybe 150,000 words of memoir. If I wanted to like give it to my niece and nephew one day and say, you know, here's what your dirty aunt Laura did in her twenties. Um, (laughs) I could do that, but it's not for that audience. It's for an audience of people who want meaning and it needs to hold together. So that was easy, putting all that stuff down. And it was fun. It was like, okay, today I'm just writing about um, the time after college when I didn't have a job and I was trying to be a bartender. Like that that stuff was fun to write because I remember a lot about it. Now is the really tough part. And that's why the, the process is so slow at this point. Cause it's me being like, what is this about? And I think once I finally find that it'll be a lot easier, but it's um, that part is tough for me. So if I were just writing like paid to be you, the book, I would, I think I would know what to write and maybe I should have tried for that, but I wanted to go with a more uh, literary thing. And so that's what I'm, that's what I'm going for. And that's what I decided to write it because I always wanted to write a book. I always wanted to have a book to my name, like to be able to say, I'm an author. You know how it is when you're a copywriter and you tell people I'm a writer and they say, oh, what did you write? Anything I'd know. And Uh you have to be like, well, do you read the back of the supplements bottle um, (laughs) at GNC? (laughs) That was one of mine. So you (laughs) It's it's something that you always want to be able to say if you if you fancy yourself a writer and that's your real love. You want to be able to say, yeah, I'm an author. Um, you can get my book at Barnes and Noble. Like, oh, there it is on the front table. That would be a dream. So I'm following that dream right now. What surprised you the most about this process, other than what you shared already, that just how hard it is to kind of figure out what ties it all together? What else has surprised you about the process of writing and publishing a book? Well, I think everything because I don't I don't understand the process yet. I'm such a rookie. My editor asked me to send her some a couple of chapters that she, you know, that I liked so she could see it was going in the right direction and I put together everything that I had written that I had already I had thought I had polished, like I had submitted it to the what I call the pod, which is a group of writers that I work with, like we all submit our work into a Google folder and read each other's work and um, give positive feedback on it. We don't really workshop it. It's not like I would change this or I'd change that. But having passed it through there, I felt good about it. So I gave her everything I had worked on in that way. And the book is in the contract. The book is contractually supposed to be 70,000 words. I thought I had just handed her a bunch of like a few chapters of that 
it turns out that I gave her 80,000 words of my starter chapters. And so she's totally flummoxed. She's like, keeps referring to it as my manuscript. I'm like, that's not my manuscript. That's just a bunch of sample chapters I sent you. So I could see if it was going in the right direction. And then I would write the manuscript. So it's, I think I'm surprised by how little I know, really. And I think the expectations on the writer to understand the process already. I don't think that an editor or publisher taking on a new writer is thinking, this is a new writer. I have to do special things to guide them through it. I think that they trust that you know how to write a book, which I get. It turns out I don't. So I'm surprised by how little I know about writing a book. I think that's the biggest surprise. Yeah, that's that's an interesting takeaway because you've written everything but a book, you know, almost literally. <laughs> and so yeah. to, to understand that it's that different from everything else is, is really mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, okay, aside from the book, Laura, what's next for you? You know, what's the next uh, hero uh, course or, you know, what, what else is coming in your business? I'm not sure. I have been giving myself the grace of like, let me just get through this book. Let me write this book and sell what I already have in the pipeline um, and sell it again. But I am toying with maybe some kind of a membership. I think a light one. I One thing that scares me off of those is how much content you need to constantly create and, uh, and the idea of retention or attrition and that kind of, I guess, constant battle to keep people. It feels desperate to me. And so I don't, I don't really relish the idea of incorporating more desperation to my life, but maybe I could approach it differently. So that's all to say maybe a membership something where I do like a live call every month or something like that. Um, and I think that when this, I, I want to see what, what doing this book brings up, like what people want, what kind of doors it opens. And it may be something more around storytelling. So I have a, a course called Story Hero, which is inside Inbox Hero. And I loved doing that. I love talking about storytelling. So I think I'm going to learn a lot more about it as I go through this. And maybe I can incorporate that into maybe a beef up story hero or make a story hero part two or something like that. And going back to Italy, uh, what's the timeline <laughs> on, on doing that? I know I, I know I missed the, the chance to go with your dad as we joked you in the first did. episode, um, but there's still a chance to go with oh. you possibly. So yeah, what, poor, what are you poor, doing that? <laughs> poor dad tried so hard to get invited to that retreat and it was never going to happen. Um, <laughs> so I I haven't talked to Bianca about it. She was my partner for it. She has a company called Italian Fix. She's been focused on getting things back up and running. And she started another business during the pandemic. I mean, what heartbreak for someone who works in the travel industry and like had to give refunds. And luckily, I had not planned on doing a retreat in 2020. That was the year I was taking off anyway. Um, otherwise would have been, we would have been stuck facing that together and I would have had to, I don't know, deal with all, all the refunds or whatever else you had to do. So it's up, I think I'll have to talk to her and see if she wants to do it again. It's hard to imagine doing it with anyone else or with a better partner. She was incredible at running it and taking off my plate, all the things that I would never want to do uh, arranging things. I mean, I'm not in the hospitality business and I don't look to be. So you, someone else sets it up and I show up and teach. Um, 
I would be excited to do it in maybe 2021, 2022, if not that. But I loved teaching in Italy. I think it was it was really it was fun for me and gave people a great chance to say, oh, look at this gift that I'm giving myself. Like, you know how people in the, in the online space love to show off luxury or little or retreats or things that they are gifts that they are giving themselves like a weekend away you know, investing in themselves so it gave them a chance it was a nice photo op for that and also they learned a lot and um it was a great chance to get to know all these people in a room have them learn from me and they learn from them so i would like to do it again let's see if this question comes out correctly um, so <laughs> You are a mentor in the copywriting space and, you know, an icon in the copywriting space and so many copywriters um, admire your work and pay close attention to you. And then you've also, you've worked closely with them now in coaching programs. And so you have observed the space. Uh, Just curious, like what is currently driving you crazy about the copywriting space or, you know, if we want to go bigger marketing or if we want to go really specific, like what's driving you crazy about copywriters today? Uh, that just kind of drives you nuts. I think I see a lot of copywriters writing copy from copy they've seen. It's just a lot of copying. And you know, when you watch a TV show and you can tell that the writers wrote it by watching too many TV shows, like it's not written from the heart. It's not written from life or anything they know or observe. It's from watching TV. So it's just, um, it's just a shadow of a shadow of a shadow and it doesn't ring true and it feels just stupid. Like those moments where someone's like, you know, Hey sis, I got your favorite chocolate chip. Um, It just, it's like, who says that? Nobody says that in real life. And I feel like a lot of copy turns out that way. It is based on other people's copy and it doesn't ring true. It feels it feels army issue, like just in, uh, Xerox. And um, so I think that's that's what drives me nuts is that they're not, a lot of people are not really learning to write and they're not, it's not coming from a place of understanding their customer, customer's needs or what people, what people need to hear in order to say yes. It's based on what they've seen a lot of and they just assume that works. So um, that's what drives me nuts is just everybody sounding the same and making this, making assumptions based on what other people have written. And maybe as a follow-up to that, you know, what do you see as the future of copywriting? What, what are the changes you've seen? Um, any predictions you have as far as how the space is changing? Huh. I think that it might, that the, the wave of sassiness maybe has calmed down. A bit and um oh, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just like hollow sassiness. It doesn't feel right uh, to anyone. I think that that's calmed down a little bit, maybe because the premier like voices who are seen as super sassy, maybe they've faded out or haven't been as yeah, just haven't been as prominent. So I think th- I think there might be a little bit of a, a swing to not more stuffy, but maybe more, you know what, I'm make, I'm totally making this up. I don't know if this is going to happen, but I, th- I feel like maybe a little bit more literary and um, formal, not unconversational, but less, yeah, with less forced sass. And I think that that, that might be reflected a little bit in the shift 
from, I don't know if you've noticed this, I've noticed a big shift from um, fonts, from sans serif fonts to serif fonts, which are a little bit more old fashioned and formal. I did that myself. I was like, I want a serif font. I want this to look like new, my site to look like New York Magazine in like 1980 or now. They use the serif. And I've seen a lot of people swing that way. And I feel like it reflects a shift in tone a little bit. Yeah, I, I like that. And in, in addition to a shift in tone, maybe maybe it feels a little more real. Uh, because I think that's what's wrong with some of the, you know, the hey, you know, the, the sassiness or the hey girl stuff or uh, or on the on the marketing bro side. Right. It just doesn't feel real. And I, I think maybe we're moving in. Maybe we're making a shift to, to things that are a little bit more authentic and a little bit more real. Uh, at least I hope we are. I hope so. The, the bro stuff, the broetry uh, is just awful. I really hope that that goes away. I understand the appeal and the, like the benefit of all that white space on the page of spacing things out like one line at a time. But first of all, vary it up a little bit, like put a couple of lines together in a paragraph and then you write your single line, like that one line space, one line space, one line space. Um, and then I, someone sent me the, like a post about broetry and it pointed out patterns that I hadn't really, I hadn't really registered, but had noticed like um, just the self-aggrandizing little story that it starts with either about something you thought you couldn't do, but then it turns out you were great at, or the one trick that like a mentor, a guy sitting on the steps of a gas station taught you, um, or uh, how like, you know, nobody was helping the lady across the street. So I stepped up and I helped her and she taught me a valuable lesson as we were crossing the street. Like that kind of shit has got to go. I got to hang out at more gas stations, I guess. I, I missed that lesson. <laughs> me too. Well, Lara, thank you for spending an hour with us. This is awesome getting caught back up. Um, you know, hopefully we get an opportunity to hang out with you again in real life. Um, but yeah, thanks for, for what you've shared. Um, you've got a lot of stuff that you share. Obviously, we want to get people on your list if they're not already on your list. You know, where should they go to connect with you and just fill their lives with you know, book updates, uh, Inbox Hero, and, and all of the other things? Yeah. Well, please come by TalkingShrimp.com and take a look around. You'll find freebies there. If you want to go straight to a great freebie uh, for any copywriter who works in email, which should be everybody but is um is talkingshrimp.com slash subject lines and that's my a list of my top most open subject lines 33 of my most open subject lines and four that tanked and why and uh, that's an ever popular freebie and i highly recommend it i sometimes go back and revisit it Damn, this is good uh, i also have five secrets to non-sucky copy which is a great place to start those are all on my site. And then come find me over at Instagram. That's my most, um, I'd say the, the social place where I am most. And that's Talking Shrimp NYC is my handle. And coming to a Barnes & Noble near you at some point in the, uh, in the coming future. Tough Titties by Laura Belgrade. <laughs> all right. Well, we appreciate it, Laura. Thank you so much for having me. So that's the end of our interview with Laura Belgray. Before we go, let's touch on a couple more things as uh, we like to do. Um, 
I know we've talked about morning rituals on the podcast before with a lot of copywriters. Maybe we, when we interviewed you on the podcast, Brittany, I don't know if we talked about whether you have a morning ritual or not, but I love Laura's ritual of just getting up to write, right? She's not doing the 5 a.m. thing. She's not doing exercise, but every day she writes something. And the 750 words app that she's using, that, that site that she's using, it, she's just writing to write. It, there's no purpose. It's just getting the words flowing from brain to fingers. And uh, this is, you know, as, as I heard Laura talking about that, I'm like, ah, I need to do this more. You know, I, I write, but I just need to, to just get that flow going more often than what I do. So I love that idea. And it's something I think I'm going to start doing in my own morning ritual. Yeah, I, man, anytime you can just kind of get like flex that creativity muscle. I mean, I remember when I first, I heard her talk about, um, is it 750 words or something like that? Yeah. 750words.com I think is what it's called. I heard her talk about that probably three years ago. And I was like, all right, I'm going to do that. Like, if that's what you got to do to be a writer, I'm super into it, you know, reading and writing. So I started reading all the time and I would wake up every morning and, and when I would sit down to work, I, I would do that. And I'm, I'm a work at home mom and, you know, my husband and I share, um, childcare responsibilities, but my, time is also really limited. And I would spend like 30 minutes writing and then be like, crap, I really needed that 30 minutes to work. Um, and so I stopped doing it. But then I heard somebody say, you know, like, as a copywriter, you're pretty much writing every day, like, just make sure you're writing something creative, you know, whether it's like your own email or something for a client. And that made me feel a lot better of like, okay, it's really good to be writing every day and flexing that creativity muscle. And if you can sit down and write three pages in the morning, Awesome. That's so great. And if you can't, you're probably going to do it in some other capacity. And so just make sure that's a part of your routine and keep keep practicing and flexing that muscle. Because I'll tell you, I switched to copy chiefing a while ago in our business. And there are times when I sit down to write copy and it is rough. So I am definitely getting back in the habit of writing my own emails and social posts and content. And you need you need to be in the habit of it if you're going to be a writer. Yeah, I, I think there's something about just letting you be creative to be creative, like with no business objective, no, like you want to write a poem, write a poem. It does not have to be published anywhere. It doesn't have to be shared anywhere. It's just your thoughts. Or you want to write an observation of, you know, of what the morning feels like or, you know, what the like, there's just so many ways that we can express our creativity. And I think too often we we go all in on business and and the best copy crosses a line somewhere. It's, it's both poetic and, you know, serves the interests of our, our clients. And it's the most interesting to read. Yeah. I love that. Just like writing without boundaries, you know, like you're not writing an email to a client where you have to worry about tone and you're just writing without boundaries and letting your shitty first draft either be the shitty first draft and it turns into something or it never turns into anything. And it was just your practice and that's good enough. Yeah. Okay. What else stood out to you, Britt, from the last half of this interview? Oh man. I mean, everything. How, like, how great is she? I just, Laura speaks to my, my lazy human heart. Like I could nap all day. I love just sitting on the couch and binging TV. You know, I'm not one of those, like I go to the gym and then I run errands. Like I love just napping. And Laura has always done such a good job, never feeding us the lie of like, I made a million dollars doing nothing, right? Like I made money while I slept. And I, and I think she can very truthfully say that now because of the products that she has and consistently sells, but, but she never talks about getting rich, doing nothing. She talks about making money, being who you are doing what you love. And I think that's really, really cool. And I wish 
more people like that's a sellable message, right? Like nobody believes that we can make money doing nothing. Like in this influencer world, we want to think that, okay, we can take a picture and get a sponsored $30,000 post. And that's just not real life. And she's never fed into that. She doesn't say I make money by laying on my couch. She says I make money while I'm on my couch because that's who I am. That's what I like to do. And I just, yeah, I love that message. Yeah, I I think I agree. You know, Laura obviously works really hard. You know, she's put together courses. She, you know, she's done you know some amazing promotions. Obviously, she's spending time now writing a book. So, uh, just the idea that yeah, I agree. You can't make money doing nothing, but you can make money, and sometimes you can make a lot of money being true to who you are, to the rhythms that you know dictate your life, to the kinds of products that interest you that you want to create. You know, she's had some amazing experiences and people can go back and listen to that first episode from, you know, when we very first started the podcast where she talked about her experience in TV and some of the stuff that she used to do in order to build her skill set so that then she can share this stuff. So I, I think that's dead on a great observation. To me, I mean, one of the things that Laura said, you know, she, she started talking about some of the things that drive her nuts about marketing today, copywriting. I'm curious. Brittany, what, um, cause I know you've have some thoughts about this. I've, I've shared some thoughts, but what drives you nuts about copywriting and marketing and what's going on in our world today? Oh, geez. Let me set up my soapbox and stand on it with Laura. Um, it's both this, like, there's a negative and a positive to it, right? Cause we can talk about what what doesn't work or what we're seeing that just needs to die a slow, painful death. But also the thing that she's talking about, like not doing that frees us up so much. So, you know, she was saying that, that it really drives her nuts, like copywriters copying copy. Right. And it's, we kind of all get this homogenous voice. Most often it's a millennial white woman. Like that is the, like the voice of the crowd, right. When we're all copying copy, it's just like, Hey girl. And I mean, shoot, when I first started, I had that millennial white woman voice, which I, I still do. Cause I am one, but, but there's so much of, I see somebody else doing this and I just can't be good enough on my own or what I have to offer. Isn't interesting enough or because I'm not seeing other people talk like me, I have to talk like them or I have to write like them. And it's, you know, we're looking for the evidence that says like that who I am is interesting enough and and how I write is good enough and how I write is something other people want to read. And the, the evidence comes when you start putting it out there and people start responding to it. And the thing that's so interesting to me is we copy these trends, whether it's in marketing or copywriting, based on um, frequency, not any data, right? So like, okay, all of these people are, um, man, I'm trying to think of, of an example, like, oh, this is something that I absolutely hate, you know? So like, if you, if there's like an opt-in or a pop-up where it's, you know, the call to action is either like, yes, give me this freebie now. And then underneath, like, no, I don't like free things. You know, it's no, like something- No, super... I'm a horrible person to make really yes, bad decisions. Yes. And yeah. Yes. And it's like, it's so shaming and so rude and snarky and- and is there any evidence? I mean, this is just totally random. It was the first thing that popped in my head, but do we have any evidence that that increases conversion, you know, or are we just doing it because we saw some other marketer do it? And the industry is changing big time. Like, I know you guys know this because you're just in it. I see this so much with my launches. Like, 
all of the marketing tricks that we learned from Cialdini and Ogilvy that all have like a foundation in persuasion psychology, but that we have used to such an extreme, like they are not working. They're not working as effectively. They're not working as frequently. Like our audiences are smarter and we see a countdown timer. And I mean, I see this all the time in user testing, right? Like we'll run user testing on a sales page and somebody will look at a countdown timer and be like, mm, really? Or are you just trying to pressure me to buy? And this is just a pedestrian. Or they'll look at social proof and be like, uh, did you pay this person? It's People are just, they're skeptical and they're smarter. And so when we just keep like repeating the things that we see without any data, that's a slippery slope. And you also don't get to just show up as your cool, weird, unique, like freak flag self, which somebody else's freak flag matches yours. So, so you should fly it. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, there's this thing going on where, you know, people are being very critical of marketing, you know, some of those marketing tactics, but which is, which is okay, because we should be talking about the things that don't work, but people sort of jump on the bandwagon with the criticism and it's almost like the same bandwagon effect goes in the opposite direction. Now everybody is talking about how horrible marketing is and it's like, okay, everybody, look, it's like we swing from one extreme to the other. And there's this middle space where we can actually help people with the stuff that we do, with the products that we sell, with the services that we offer and, and make a difference in people's lives. And you don't have to go to either extreme. You know, you don't have to be um, totally critical of everything marketing or on the other side, you know, that, that boss babe marketing bro, you know, type that's like all in on manipulation and whatever. It's like, I, I I'm, it's just, there's a space in the middle that I don't think very many people are trying to own here. And we just swing from one side to the other as to what we should be talking about or what we should do. Yeah. And anti-bro marketing is the new bro marketing. Exactly. Like it's just, and that's, and I think that that is a little bit of what Laura is talking about of just this like copy and copy. Somebody else said this and, and the other thing was hot, you know, last year, but now this is the new hot thing. And what if we just actually thought about what do we want to say? What do our people want to hear? What unique perspective do I have? What conversation belongs here? What things can we look at critically? And how do we do it well in alignment with our values or our voice or our perspective, our personality, our offer, you know, our brand, all of these things. And, and what do we not need to be taking into the next generation with us? But just copying ain't it. I, I agree 100%. Okay, we want to thank Laura Belgray for joining us on the podcast today. If you want to hear our first interview with Laura, yeah, so you can see how much her business has changed over the past three years, you can find it on our website. It's episode 15. Of course, you can also find it on Apple Podcasts and all of the other places where you find podcasts. And like she mentioned, you can find everything else that she does at TalkingShrimp.com. This is the end of this week's amazing episode of the Copywriter Club podcast. The intro music was composed by copywriter and songwriter Addison Rice. The outro was composed by copywriter and songwriter David Muntner. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, please visit Apple Podcasts to leave your review of the show and feel free to tell Rob your favorite pasta. And if you're ready to invest in yourself and your copywriting business and finally achieve your goals, visit copywriterthinktank.com as a current member of that group, I will tell you it is worth every penny. And if you want to know more, feel free to DM me and I will tell you how obsessed I am with Rabira. In fact, I'm thinking of getting their faces on a shirt. So thank you for listening. We will see you next week. I want to thank Brittany for joining me. Thanks, Britt. And uh, when you get that shirt, um, I think I might, <laughs> I might need to approve the photo there, whatever that looks like.
We'll see. We'll see. Copywriters coming together to help the world write.